0: You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast.
1: Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week is Strong Citizens Week. We are focusing on people and ways that people can make a choice to live in a strong towns kind of way. And I've got on the phone with me a good friend of mine, Ethan Kent. Ethan's a senior vice president at the Project for Public Spaces. He's uh he's chatting with me from their offices in New York. Welcome to the podcast, Ethan.
0: Thanks so much, Chuck. I'm honored to get to be on this with you. Yeah.
1: Hey, I I love chatting with you. You know, last week on Facebook, I actually posted a quote from an economist named Tomas Sedlacek. And, and he said, uh, something along the lines of, you know, we're, we're not going to be any happier living in 4,400 square foot houses than we were in, in 2,200 square foot houses. And it was amazing to me because to me, it was a commentary on consumption. Yet, there was a whole bunch of people in my Facebook feed who responded, Well, I live in, you know, a house this big and a house this big. And you were one of them who said, I think you have a thousand square foot apartment. Is that right?
0: Yeah, so maybe maybe less than that. Ten feet wide and three stories. And there's a stairwell down the middle. So it's, I guess, about 30 feet long. So it's, depending on how you count it, it's 800 or 900 square feet. In, in Brooklyn.
1: Yeah. Well, here's, here's the crazy thing about yours. I didn't know the personal stories of a lot of those other people, but you got kids, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm a, I mean, I'm a father. I've got two daughters. They spread out throughout the entire house and t- have taken everything over. Mm-hmm. And I got to thinking, how in the world does Ethan do that with children? So yeah, so yeah, there's
0: four of us in the, in the, in the house and we, it's it's hard, especially in the winter. It's it's tight. They're they're two r- very rambunctious energetic boys and you know, if they get bored they pick a fight with each other. Um so the challenge is to get out of the house and what you know, we're lucky that the neighborhood uh, has a lot of great public spaces and a whole range of them. And then good you know, shops and retail and restaurants that we can go into when it's cold, um as well.
1: I realize this is where you're from. This is your neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, was there a decision involved here? I mean, did you did you look at other options and opt for this or what was kind of the discernment process you made to go through and say, you know, we're gonna have two kids in a in a small apartment and make that work?
0: So yeah, I mean I, I grew up in actually Manhattan and uh so in a way this is sort of normal and we we've been lucky to get to visit grandparents and such and in, in, you know, out of the city that to be able to escape somewhat. But, um, you know, the neighborhood is such a neighborhood that's rich in public spaces and community life. And, and, you know, we see it as a, you know, we're going together and the density of the neighborhood and the fact that a lot of people live in small houses means a lot of people are spending more time outside on the street. Most of the buildings are three or four stories tall. Um, but the street life is, is very strong. A lot of, you know, it's very likely you're going to bump into somebody, bump into somebody you know on the the sidewalks. So going out is often a very social experience.
1: What do you think you give up, if anything, from this? And and I contrast that with what do you think you gain? Obviously, you know, very involved in your kids' lives. What are some of the positives and and some of the downsides of that choice?
0: Well, certainly the positives. I mean, we have a very low feeding bill. And I mean, I think we have more opportunities for you know food and retail and services for children within a walkable distance of our neighborhood because people are living in small apartments and it's a, it's a fairly affluent neighborhood as well you know the downsides um you know that we're on top of each other and you know we uh we don't have our own space so it forces us and encourages us, us all to travel and that's part of our a big part of our lives as well it's, Seeing other other places and traveling for work and combining that with with pleasure as well too. So it, it goes with our lifestyle in that regard.
1: How would you respond to people who say this just sounds impossible? What would you say to someone who said that?
0: It's fun to, to have to be efficient. I've always sort of liked living on the idea of living on a boat. Everything has its place, and everything uh, has to. Um, be sort of kept in order a little more than than you would otherwise. Um, certainly, we don't need as much stuff too. We don't we don't need as much furniture. We don't need as much. We we can't have as many things to to fill up the space. So we you know we have to be more resourceful and frugal. in, in some ways, you adapt to the space you're you're given. And uh, you know I, I think it's actually very spacious. Uh, you know most days. <laughs> so. Um, it is what we get used to, our environment, I think.
1: I want to ask you a little bit about your work with, with the Project for Public Spaces. One of the things that I think is so compelling about the work that you do in terms of strong citizens is that you've, in a way, I don't want to say attacked the professional monopoly, but really what you've done is you you've spread out the empowerment for building places beyond just people who... Have a certain degree or a certain license or, or you know a certain job designation can you talk a little bit about that work and and why the strong citizen aspect of it is such an in, important part
0: certainly yeah well I, I love your your idea of, of strong citizens and that's an inspiring concept and phrase and yeah our work really has, has been to sort of democratize the shaping of, of public spaces to make it in cities and uh, to make planning accessible to to everyone. We were really started to put into practice the work of a man by the name of William Hollingsworth White. He was actually an editor for Jane Jacobs that got her to write The Death and Life of Great American Cities and he wrote in a way, to sort of demystified sort of a lot of planning issues and um, wrote in a way that people Started to feel like they were experts in in how cities work, and 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 sort of ramp people onto being interested in these issues, and in, in the issues of cities that had been sort of ceded to experts and so forth. And our work has been to take those ideas, but really look at how to develop this concept of what we call placemaking, where where how can we really empower, challenge, inform people to be able to to shape their environments, to to be able to be you know constructive participants in their environments, and. You know, the challenge, you know, we've seen is, you know, that our, our environments really reflect the fact that they've been shaped by a limited group of people, often for a limited set of outcomes defined by different professions. So you've articulated this as well as anybody around, you know, how traffic engineers have, have shaped our streets and road systems. But we, we think that we need more professions. We need more creative professions, but we need to really start, turn upside down the process to start with communities defining places. And drawing on the different disciplines to then support their efforts in doing that, um, and we've developed you know, many tools and processes to to create a very constructive process for engaging communities, um, but also to sort of really build the local capacity of communities to do this themselves to create new civic infrastructure and place governance structures. that are, are in a way very much common sense. They're really how. Great cities, great neighborhoods, great towns were formed in the first place. But these are, the, these are the systems we've degraded.
1: When I've, you know, talked to different groups, neighborhood groups, people who want to make changes in their communities, and you, you walk around and you, you look at things and you start talking to them. And one of the reactions I often get is, well, we can't do that. you know, I'd have to go to city hall, I'd have to go get the engineers approval, and they won't do that. How much of this is stuff that we've kind of artificially erected, that keeps people from doing things that like you say, a few generations ago would have been very normal for an average citizen to be engaged with,
0: you know, the perception, the reality of the shaping of cities has has shifted towards you know, sort of big projects, big design, the, the sort of expert realm of, of cities. But what we find, what makes cities really work, what makes public spaces really work, are the experiences at the human scale and the ones that actually citizens can shape. And that if we really turn upside down the shaping of cities to start with these places, we can have a big impact in a short time with low costs, but also a better set up the role of the expert and create larger systems of uh, from transportation, of buildings, of infrastructure, that work better as well.
1: What What do you think the role of the expert is, Ethan?
0: The role of the expert ultimately actually has to be to build the capacity of communities to to work well themselves, to, to develop their own, shape their own future. We're not trained uh, you know everyone is not really trained in school to be good facilitators to inspire people to inform people we 're t- we 're trained to have a solution and to push it through we 're trained to come up with an idea individually and sort of use a rarefied language to sell that that idea but, you know collaboration building capacity building networks for change um you know, these are these are not the the, the goals of many professional um, educations, but in fact, these are these are roles that can create more influence and more demand uh, for professionals and the solutions that that they're often rightfully helping to push.
1: Obviously, I'm a civil engineer. I'm a land use planner. We're, we're often leading the solution, as opposed to kind of listening and, and finding the solution. And, you know, I read all the marketing brochures from all the engineering companies that say, well, we, you know, we listen to you and we do what you want, but it, it doesn't really tend to work that way here in the United States. How hard is it? I, maybe I'm looking for places that have successfully done this too, to, to flip that equation around and say, okay, as an engineer, I'm going to, in a sense, observe you, the citizens of the city, or, or, you know, follow your lead and then work from there? Is that a, is, is that just too radical of a model for us?
0: You know, it's not what professions are trained to do. And, and it's actually, interestingly, it's a, some of the most progressive wings of these professions, the engineering, landscape, architecture, design professions, are actually, you know, they're doing it better than others, but they're often the ones that are most blocking the sort of shift. So uh, the sort of framework I, I think about this in is this idea that you know most shaping of the built environment is very sort of project led or or discipline led, but the, the sort of progressive wings of disciplines are are doing what we call place sensitive design. They're they're getting they're getting some input, they're responding to culture, context, environment. They're making you know more aesthetic and and interesting and human scale and so forth. But they're sometimes blocking the development of capacity and and. Uh, sort of local uh, autonomy and um, and self-direction. What what we're trying to get is to be what we're calling sort of place-led, where the communities are defining their vision for themselves, their story, their, their culture, their identity, and attracting investment, design, new people on their terms. We think public spaces are a means through which we can have constructive engagement and have constructive, creative, immediate change as well. It's not that communities can design should be doing all the design or doing any any design themselves necessarily. Um, it's that they can talk about what do they want to do in their public spaces. How can how do they use them? How can they make them work better themselves? And then how does you know then when you lead with public spaces in the program for these spaces and what we call sort of lighter quicker cheaper short term low cost changes to them, that's a form of engagement it's a form of just building momentum right away it's a form of planning essentially and you know I, I know as um Jason Roberts talks about it it's cheaper to do the To uh from better block it's cheaper to do that kind of planning than to to, to do renderings or um uh, in some cases but, um but these, leading with the public spaces, you know, then attracts investment, development, design to support that. And too often the shaping of cities has been, you know, led with, you know, the different disciplines or the different, with development, with design, with aesthetics, with, you know, with, with a narrow set of goals, not with creating places for people.
1: How does lighter, quicker, cheaper and maybe you should take a, a moment to explain that a little bit, too. But but how does that really rely on strong citizens and, and the feedback of people in order to be successful?
0: You know, I think some of the professions perhaps have perpetuated this myth that, you know, shaping cities is, is about heavier, more expensive, slower. It's about it's, – which is, you know, in a way that – Know, consciously or not that's how communities have been alienated from the shaping of cities is um, is that the perception that they're, they're hard, it's hard to shape cities and that experts have arrived at these things and they must be right so later for the cheaper you know in essence is again turning it upside down and saying you know what actually we everyone can help shape their public realm the concept of experimenting and short-term changes is you know really frees people up to to, to learn to make mistakes to see the public realm as flexible and, and uh something we do have responsibility for we can't just we can't just feed to others so experimenting is you know we've been talking about the sort of key principles of placemaking for, for over 20 years now and you know short term experiments has always been one of the key ideas there um and we you know, you know for all those years we've gotten a lot of We've done repainting of intersections and gotten pilot projects in New York, you know, well before Zantac or others came along. So it's 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 an idea that's been around for for quite a while, and and it's really exciting how it's gotten a lot of momentum and you know, under many different names um, in recent years. And we, you know, our interest is to make sure people see this as not just you know a bunch of cute sort of short term changes, but part of a much larger. Shift a paradigm shift in how we we shape cities. So, how does this shift governance and financing and the process through which our cities are shaped? How do we make sure it's not it's not an end in itself, but obviously part of a longer term process that you know that can often lead to you know more permanent, more designed spaces. Um, although that's not often not always necessary. too. Sometimes keeping it low cost and formal and evolving is is the way that is the way to go.
1: Right in right in front of my office here they 're actually right now in the process of redoing the roadway. The in fact, the road closes next week for about a month, and they 're going to rip the whole thing up and, and redo it move move curbs the the whole deal. I kind of assumed and, and i shouldn 't have because you know there 's a long track record here of of bad performance, but I kind of assumed because it was so obvious that this new design would actually include some pedestrian facilities. The side of this road has all the goat paths where people walk back and forth and you you don't have to sit here and watch long and you see this stream of people going back and forth from a neighborhood to the south to the commercial area in the north. Yet, (laughs) I now got a hold of the plans and are actually putting the exact same thing back in with not only not the just minimum i mean I, I actually thought they'd put in some trees and some shade and some other things but they're not even putting the minimum stuff in how how much of a lost opportunity do we as design professionals have when we don't just observe people i mean is that not like the first step it is just observing what's going on
0: and that, and that's really you know the the key Ideas that our worker out of, you know, the, the worker William White, you know, that people actually reveal more by what they do than what they say, even. And,
1: uh, oh, I'm, um, I'm, I'm sure that there was public hearings on this where they brought people in. And, and, you know, I'm sure that the guy with the, you know, concrete factory south of town said, I, you know, I'll make sure this is wide and have sweeping curves so I can get my big trucks through there. But, you know, the, the people walking up and down the street didn't show up to that meeting, right? Right,
0: right we think we really need to reframe the conversation. Uh, We've been using this phrase streets as places to get people to take a step back and say, well, what are, you know, what what are the greatest outcomes that this space can achieve? Yeah. You you know, it can move people through, but can it also be a destination unto itself and can it support health? Can it get kids to want to cross the street and, uh, you know, can it be a place where, where people meet each other and connect and preserve and create their local identity and culture and, those conversations should, when they're allowed to happen, people often come to very different conclusions on their own terms. You know, it can lead to different design outcomes, but it also, can, its you know, design of the street isn't everything either. You know, so some of the same design streets have different speeds based on the amount of social capital on the streets, even. Uh, there's, you know, some studies have, have shown, so... You know, how the process through which you create these streets can build that social capital, can build the connections, can get people living in the front of their homes more and get people um, using the sidewalk differently in ways that may actually slow traffic, that may start to inform a different street design, that that may get people more comfortable with parking a few blocks away because they like... Walking down these streets again and they, they see this whole area, the whole area as a destination or a a district, that kind of thing. So leading with place, we think, is the way to reframe the conversation for a more constructive dialogue and discourse, but, uh, but also for looking at streets as a a series of destinations that, that, uh, is the ultimate goal. The goal is for transportation planning isn't just to move people around. It's actually to get people to places they want to be. And therefore, we should really start transportation planning with, with about creating places and, and destinations.
1: You guys work internationally a lot, and I, I see you traveling all over the world. I want to ask kind of an open question and, and let you go with it where you will. Um, You know, Americans, we're a very affluent country, and I've kind of been critical of the fact that it, it seems like we've used that affluence often to kind of shop out our responsibility for our places. I'm interested around the world in places that maybe are not as affluent as we are, if there's a different social approach or a different social expectation amongst people, or if, you know, people are all the same wherever they go in this regard, what's your take on strong citizens around the world and and the way that they are embraced or not in building great places?
0: Yeah, we are. So we're lucky we we have gotten to work in really most of context all over the world, from slums of Nairobi to Harvard's campus to, you know, I've gotten to work in you know, most of the habitable continents, or, or all of them, really. Um,
1: it, it's you know, it's amazing how
0: I mean, every part of the world is leading in some ways and holding back in others, but it's really at the scale of, of so the main street or the district, that cities fail and succeed, and it's at that scale that citizens are best engaged and and you know and when citizens are feeling a sense of attachment to or connection to their places is um when they're most likely to be contributing and participating in a constructive way and and uh, this the sort of lovability of the place that we think is overlooked and and, and sometimes too often we're looking at sort of the livability uh, which is you know, the goal we need we need livability, but livability correlates very strongly with. With cost with with you know affordability, and we think when we lead with lovability, you can actually achieve livability and and a lot of other outcomes sometimes more affordably uh and and, and indeed, you know many of the poorest parts of the world do achieve this you know through place attachment through creating places that people love and and care about and i mean I love actually your phrase you wrote somewhere that uh we didn't create places we love in you know, our great public spaces because we were rich, we we became rich because we created these places. I think that, you know, is, a, is a, such a simple, powerful idea that, you know, is really the core of what we want to get people to understand around the world. And unfortunately, I think people around the world are copying many of the mistakes we've made, or, or perception, at least, in the U.S., that, that, you know, we lead with development and, you know, sort of trendy new ideas around design and aesthetic and infrastructure, not around places and people. Yet, you know, if you look at, those great main streets that the towns in America that are strong that really I think do represent sort the core of American culture, um, and civic infrastructure and strong state of citizens. That is a model and a scale at which does need to be replicated around the world. And, you know, you and I were plus 10 together. We were together. We were at the White House at the Rural Placemaking Summit uh, talking about these issues and how the scale of American Main Street, um, and how you know, we're working with the National Main Street Center to advanced placemaking in, in their sixteen hundred plus communities. Um and, and because of this idea. But it's at that scale that you know American cultures Really created and preserved and, uh, in a strong local economy, they're created and preserved. And, and, and your work is, is, is more important than anyone's, I think, around supporting and advancing that, it, that it, goal.
1: It really feels to me, and, and I want your opinion on this too. It, it really feels to me like when we're talking about communities that are labeled disadvantaged or that have issues of, of poverty or concentrations of poverty that, the strong citizen with the placemaking approach is really not only empowering on a personal level, but is one of, I think, the key strategies to getting these places back and and making them function again for everybody and kind of, you know, sharing a broad level of prosperity. Tell me your impression on that, because I, I feel like it is the answer and I, I don't want to be, you know too narrowly focused, but I, I, I really passionately believe that.
0: No, I, and, and I couldn't agree more. And I think there's this false perception that strong citizens are getting in the way of change. And, <laughs> right. and, and uh, given and, and, and in the current paradigm of shaping cities, they actually do. And that the only way that citizens are allowed to be strong is to oppose something. Uh, and it, it's to stand up and stop so the people that do show up to meetings are the ones that say, don't do it, um and to give you know to are given you know, the public input dynamic or where disciplines come up with a solution and show it to them, and that's you know disempowering, and it does it, it create the only way it creates strength is that it allows people to be negative or because that's the only way they can participate but uh yeah, I think the city of the future, the cities that are going to succeed the most the towns that are going to succeed the most are the ones that allow communities to shape them, not just consume them we've gone through this era where yeah you know, the world is something to be consumed, and you know it's all you know developers are selling the you know the live work play experience or experiences of downtown and, and the brands of cities and such so forth and um in some ways that stuff is, you know that we do need all all of that, but that is uh, has a limited capacity and will continue to degrade the capacity of strong citizens and um I think cities like you know Detroit and you know, some of the you know the more affordable midwestern cities are the model that they're starting to thrive with is this idea that people that live there forever, people that are moving there now, can help shape them, can help create them, can be strong citizens in in them. And you know, in in, in these places, that these are, this is where creative culture is going to be, you know, going to emerge, and, and and you know, in the, the culture of strong local economies, and um, is going to be preserved as well. The biggest crisis on earth is. Is our capacity to work together to create change? It's not that we don't have the right solutions or understand the right problems. It's that we're not focused on our our collective capacity, our networks, our ability to inspire and educate each other and facilitate change. And and that is you know most embodied in you know the, the sort of the passive. Isolation of citizens, the disconnection of citizens. Um, But at the same time, it's not that hard to overcome. It's 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 a common sense. It's how we want to participate with each other. It's how we uh, how all the great places that you know that we love in this world, on, on every scale, have been created through people. Loving them and competing to contribute to the shared value of of these places through working together. I think you know a lot of the innovation that's needed in the world right now is innovation in, in collective governance around place and 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 you know the processes and, you know, and structures around which we collaborate to to draw out the capacity of everyone to work together um, in shaping their their public realm first. it's an exciting time for this for this conversation
1: well you've been extremely kind to me and to strong towns i've said this to you before and i'll say it here i i think project for public spaces i think you uh your father the 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 whole team that is assembled there i think you guys are doing the most important work in the country and i just you know i want to thank you for that because i it's it is very inspiring
0: so this, this is say, I mean, it's, you know, again, it's, I think it's a, it's a network of us uh, that, that that is needed to figure this out. You know, just the the way citizens are sort of isolated. I think a lot of times our the nonprofits they're doing similar stuff and offering different pieces of the civic infrastructure are sometimes disconnected. So it's how, figuring out ways that we can all all work together and creating networks of our individual networks that that is key. I think no one is saying this more powerfully and succinctly than you and and. And often, and, and, and disrupting and connecting different networks, um the way you are. So it's a really valuable role and coming from the, the context with which you're, you're starting this conversation is particularly important and valuable to the larger, you know, national and global conversation. So I think, you know things are changing quickly and, and, or, you're you're a key part of it, and and, and that actually allows me to give you a, give a quick plug to this placemaking week that that we're excited to have you as part of um, in Vancouver, BC, in the middle of September.
1: I was going to bring um, that up. Is that is that the is that the next time our calendars are scheduled to intersect? Because that yeah. that seems like a long ways away for you we know, yeah. we should get together quicker than that. But yeah, we're going to be in Vancouver, which I'm super excited about. And uh, why don't you talk just a just briefly about that?
0: About 40 years ago, there was a conference called Habitat One. For those of you who know Enrique Penulosa and Gil Penulosa, it was their father helped start it, and it helped launch what is now known as UN Habitat and a lot of the sort of urbanist movements. Um, and, and as I learned more and more about it, I mean, a lot of the thinking that we're just talking about today was very strong then, and it somehow disappeared. Uh, Forty years later, uh the UN gets together, actually every 20 years, and they're getting together for Habitat 3 in Quito in October. And I, the goal of this Vancouver conference is to coalesce all the people we've met and and their networks in Vancouver to talk about how do we create place-led cities, how do we translate down the shaping of cities to start with people and places. So it's, it's an amazing group of thinkers and leaders, and it's, it's, it's an open conference. Um, it's actually a series of conferences. It will build off of the first event is pro walk, pro bike, pro place, which is really the sort of the biking and walking uh advocates that we see as the foundation of and uh, the leading edge of a lot of this this movement. And then uh some called the Future of Places Conferences which is one we've led with UN Habitat for several years and has included people from a hundred countries, fourteen hundred people, um, public space, placemaking experts from around the world that have helped to really build the case for public space is central to the what's being called the new urban agenda to be set at Habitat three. And finally it's gonna end with this placemaking leadership forum, which um, will help to, to set a series of strategies and, and and goals to really engage the sort of multi-sector and you know, all levels of leadership to sort of develop models for how we can all work together best to shape our, our communities. So it's, uh, it's placemakingweek.org is the website. Um And uh, we're excited to involve strong towns in a big way, and 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 your networks, and in in any way you're interested in, really.
1: So, we'll be linking to that on our website. If you go to strongtowns.org and click on events, you'll get all the information. Ethan, my gosh, it's it's nice to hear you, and and nice to chat with you. Thanks so much for taking yeah, the time.
0: Thank you so much, Chuck. Any any time, we we'll, we'll appreciate it.
1: All right, to talk to you. Okay. You take care. Take bye care, bye. Chuck. bye. And thank you, everybody, for listening today. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care.
0: We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to
1: be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, Bill, Bill,
0: Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, made city?
1: I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world.